Welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman. It is Friday, April 22nd, 2016, and we are here in the Mission. It's not too sunny today. It's a little bit rainy, uh, which is good because we could use the rain. So it was announced uh, yesterday that Prince has passed, and uh, there's an artist who has touched millions of people and inspired and influenced so many people. So we'll be playing as much Prince as we can on the show today. And also, if you stay tuned to Mutiny Radio, I'll be sitting in for Global Val for Women's Magazine. And then following that, we'll be a Common Thread Collective with Diamond Dave and many performers. So I'll pretty much be here all day, and I will be playing as much Prince as possible. So if folks have any particular Prince favorites they would like to hear, please comment on the Weekly Review page, or you can call in at 415-550-0511, and I'll do my best to get to as many as possible. There's a lot out there. A very prolific artist, and... Yeah, I can't really add anything that hasn't already been said, but just I'll be playing as much music as possible and uh, by by Prince. And then also the City Hall in San Francisco, they made purple. So uh, there's purple lights on last night, which was quite beautiful. And I was able to get a photo of that. (sighs) So uh, in terms of getting on with the news, and we will be getting on (laughs) with the news as per usual. Uh, there has been a hunger strike happening outside the Mission Police Department. So I went down there last night, a little bit after midnight, and talked to a few folks who are out there. And this is to protest to have uh, Police Chief Greg Sir fired. And um, it's 
there's quite a long list. Someone published recently uh, his actions over the past few years, a lot of reprehensible actions, and he should no longer be in charge of anything, pretty much. So a lot of folks are are sitting outside the uh, Mission Police Station, which is on the corner of Valencia and 17th, and I encourage folks, if you're walking by, to go there and, and talk to some of these folks and um, see how we can all um, be part of this, this movement together. Uh, as far as other local news goes, there was a fire this morning on Valencia and 24th Street. Looks like it was an apartment building based on the photos that I saw. So there have been to be quite a few, few fires happening here uh, in residential buildings, which is pretty not, pretty great, pretty not good. And uh, one sees these patterns of uh, people thinking that might be arson. So that's not necessarily for this one that just happened, but I think that's in the forefront of people's minds when folks want to make money off of apartments, then they can start fires and evict people and then raise the rents. So not sure, of course, what has happened yet with this one, but that seems to be a common theme here in the mission. So the first song we played uh, is one of my, I don't, I have too many favorite Prince songs a lot, so it's kind of tricky to, 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 to find the particular one to start with, but Controversy is probably, maybe it's my favorite. I think it's just really, oh, it's just really good, but they'll be playing more. And I think that leads us into the first story I'm going to read. And as someone, I personally am an anti-Zionist, and I think there's a discussion that needs to be had that there's some folks kind of tend to equate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, which is not the case. There are folks who can be against colonialism and not, and I myself am of Jewish descent, and I feel like it would be wrong for me not to speak up against the atrocities that are happening to Palestinians. So that's what the story I'm going to lead off with. And um, Talia Cooper, who has been on a guest on the show before, who is with an organization called Ben the Ark, uh, was arrested, among with uh, several other people in New York recently. And this was um, at the Liberation Seder. And you can find this article at The All, which is awl.com. And the, the headline, uh, Young Jews protested the Israeli occupation, occupation by getting arrested where old Jews work. And this was written by Noah Colwin, and this came out on April 21st. Early last week, the Bernie Sanders campaign announced it had hired a new director of Jewish outreach, 25-year-old Simone Zimmerman, an outspoken lefty activist with a long history of work within the American Jewish community. Shortly thereafter, the Washington Free Beacon published a screenshot of a year-old Facebook post in which Zimmerman called the right-wing Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu an arrogant, deceptive, cynical, manipulative asshole, among other not-so-niceties. Abe Foxman, the retired director of the Anti-Defamation League, ADL, called for her immediate dismissal. Thursday night, shortly before the Democratic debate between Sanders and Hillary Clinton got underway in New York, the New York Times reported that Zimmerman had been suspended. The incident looks now like it was a two-day blip on the radar of a long, of a year-long Democratic primary battle. In the context of the overlong, meme-ridden 2016 election, that's fair. On Wednesday evening, 17 young, left-leaning Jews got themselves arrested in the lobby of the Manhattan building that is home to the ADL office. They were members of a Jewish anti-occupation collective called If Not Now, whose name is a reference to a proverb of the Jewish sage Hillel, if I am not for myself, who is for me? And being for my own self, what am I? And if not now, when? Virtually, all its members were raised in the Jewish community, and many spent time in Israel on study abroad programs, synagogue tours, or trips for Jewish youth. Many speak Hebrew or Yiddish. Simone Zimmerman is a member. 
if not now, emerged in the summer of 2014 during the last round of intense conflict between Hamas militants and the Israeli military, a devastating war that left more than 2,000 Gazans, including hundreds of children and 70 Israelis dead. Outraged by the American Jewish establishment's reflexive defense of Israeli military action, the group then staged a sit-in in the offices of the Con Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organization. Ahead of this weekend's Passover celebration, if not now, held Liberation Seder protests in five cities, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Oakland, and Washington. Their goal was to use civil disobedience to apply pressure to major American Jewish institutions. Hillel International in Washington, in AIPAC office in Boston, to question how military occupation can be reconciled with values of social justice and equality. At 4 p.m., about 40 people gathered at the northwest corner of 5th Avenue and 40th Street just outside the entrance of the New York Public Library. Most of them were dressed in white per instructions. Organizers handed out t-shirts that read, No Liberation with Occupation to protesters who planned to be arrested. The group comprised mostly 20-something Jews, many of whom grew up attending the same day schools, summer camps, and synagogues. There were more women than men present and a handful of yarmulkes on both women and men. At 4.15, Ben Walcott, a bearded 25-year-old Maryland native who now lives in Crown Heights, planned to get arrested. He succeeded. He wore a patchwork sweater that he later swapped out for a no-liberation shirt. Walcott said he spent 14 years in the labor Zionist Jewish youth movement, Habanim Dror, after high school. He spent nine months in Israel, an experience that he says p politicized him, forcing him to witness occupation firsthand. After graduating from Swarthmore, he joined If Not Now, which he had said reinvigorated his interest in Jewish causes. I haven't felt moved by my Jewishness this time. This, this is the first time I've been excited in many years, he said, his voice rising. This is a Jewish space that lives up to the values I was taught as a kid. At 4.30 p.m., the event planners, Tom Corcoran and Lizzie Horn, stood on the steps of the library and called the growing crowd to attention. They asked people to take a moment to ground themselves. This marks the beginning of Passover. This proves as a community, as if not now, we say Dayenu, or enough. Corcoran said, for too many years, Jews around the world have celebrated our own freedom while denying it to the Palestinian people. He went on, and what we're doing, what we're going to do now is march down to the ADL and take over that space as a community, a radical, loving liberation seder. At 4.45 p.m., the crowd begins to walk over to the ADL, a few blocks southeast of the library. Avner Gaviarhu, an ex-IDF paratrooper studying for a master's degree in human rights at Columbia, told me, there are people in Israel who are following If Not Now and what's going on here, and they're hopeful. Back in Israel, Gavarhu, Gavariahu led tours in the occupied city of Hebron, parts of which are off-limits to Palestinians. It is a deeply violent place, Late last year, The Guardian called it a pressure cooker and the West Bank's most troubled city. At 5 p.m., the lobby of 605 Third Avenue looked like any other in a high-priced midtown office complex. High ceilings, revolving doors, keycard access turnstiles, and stocky security guards. The protesters quickly formed a large oval in the lobby, careful to avoid blocking the entrances and exits. They set down a mock Seder plate with drawings of the shankbone, bitterroot, and other Passover ritual items, and began a series of readings about Jewish obligations to social justice. There were several back and forth chants of Dayenu. This is an institution that ought to belong to us, one protester said. Let's make it a bit harder for the ADL to keep doing what it's doing. 
At 5.15 p.m., the protesters linked arms and began chanting classic songs of the American left, which side are you on, and Passover hymns, Avadim Hainu, or We Were Slaves. Dancing around the lobby, an older man on his way out of the building stopped to ask, if not now member, about the protest. Holding up a phone with stickers identifying him as both Jewish and an alumnus of GWU, he asked if the demonstration was pro-Israel, anti-Israel. It's against the occupation of the West Bank, so it's anti-Israel. No, it's... So you're a left-wing communist pinko. You're full of shit, he said, backing toward one of the revolving door exits. As he walked out, he did not break eye contact with the demonstrators, pointing violently and mouthing, you're full of shit. At 5.33 p.m., the first police officer showed up from the, nearly, from the nearby 17th precinct. Over the next 20 minutes, designated liaisons to the police informed the officers of who planned on being arrested. About a dozen cops stood outside the entrance. At 5.50 p.m., the police count increased, and those planning to be arrested hugged their comrades. They sat down, linked arms, and began chanting. The crowd, by that point, between 90 and 100 people, exited the lobby and began chanting in solidarity. And they had, at 5.52, there's a tweet from ADL National, and it's to, if not now, org. Uh, there's more we agree on than disagree on. Let's talk about it. When are you free? And at 6.04 p.m., the Strategic Response Group, NYPD Commissioner Bill Bratton's trained protest police, began arriving. The arresting officers were identifiable by the bundles of zip ties attached to their belts. At 6.15 p.m., Toby Irving, whose job was to stand outside the building during the demonstration and field questions from passerby, passersby, told me that her job was mostly fine except for one guy who came up and asked her what the protest was about. She said... Uh, I said it was against the occupation, and he asked, occupation of what? And I said, the West Bank. And then he looked at me and said, fuck you, you fucking bitch. 6.20 p.m., arrests began. The activists formed a set of two Red Rover-like lines, creating a path between an exit of the building and one of the vans they would use to take arrested protesters to jail. The SRG officers zip-tied the hands of 17 demonstrators and walked them through the two lines and into the paddy wagon. As the arrested demonstrators were marched to the vans, the If Not Now activists began chanting the Jewish hymn, Hein Matov, Behold How Good and how pleasant it is for brothers to sit together. At the as the protest wound down, a voice in the crowd shouted, we told them we were free, and they supported freedom and dignity for all Palestinians. When we told them we were free, when they supported freedom and dignity for all Palestinians. At 6.36 p.m., the vans with the arrested protesters drove away. And... Uh, yeah, so if folks want to take a look at this article again, it's at the OWL, which is awl.com, and this came out on April 21st, so it's good to see folks doing this kind of work. Um, so later on, I'll be playing clips from uh, folks who are protesting outside the um, police station in the mission, and actually I'll get to that now, why not? So I'll be playing another Prince song, one of my favorites, and then we'll be back with... Uh, some more stories. Uh, there will hopefully be some good stories here today um, on the news. And I guess it really depends on how you look at it. There's always going to be trouble thing, troubling things happening, and when people speak up against it, then that's a good thing. So try to look at it that way.
around this way so I can work on that zipper, baby. Tonight, you're a star.
and welcome back to the weekly review of course that was prince with get off one of my other favorite prince songs i remember when that album came out in 91 diamonds and pearls <sighs> so that held i mean all the songs i guess hold their own meaning and, and connection and i think for for folks who were around when certain albums came out uh just the excitement of of the new music and the new videos that were very provocative certainly for when i mean i was 10 or 11 around that time and it's quite a bit to, to think about. So moving on, as I mentioned before, there are folks who are having a staging a hunger strike outside the police department here in the mission. So I'm going to read a little bit um, from an article from Mission Local, and then I'll be playing a clip from folks speaking out about that. And this comes from uh, the missionlocal.org. Uh, you can check that out there. Uh, activists began hunger strike to protest police shootings, and this was l- written by Laura Wenis uh, and Joe Ravano Barros. Four activists arrived at the Mission Police Station Thursday morning to begin a hunger strike to protest police shootings. They came with a, with a class of preschoolers in tow, leading them in a chant of Croemos Paz, or We Want Peace. Organizer Maria Cristina Gutierrez said she brought the children to show officers who she wants to protect from future run-ins with police. Gutierrez, 66, is the executive director of Campaneros del Barrio Preschool on 16th and Valencia. Gutierrez, her son, Iliak Sato, also known as the rapper Equipto, Edwin Lindo, Equipto, thank you. Equipto, Edwin Lindo, currently a candidate for District 9 supervisor, and Ike Pinkston, a preschool teacher at Compañeros del Barrio, officially began their hunger strike on Thursday, uh, though some have not eaten since Wednesday. Each of the hunger strikers said they would hold on for as long as they could, ideally until they achieved their goal of unseating police chief Greg Sir. Gutierrez said she could not fathom justifications for the deaths of San Francisco residents Alex Nieto, Amilcar Perez-Lopez, Mario Woods, and most recently, Luis Gongora. All were shot and killed by officers. It cannot go on like this. Uh, They cannot be murdering people like it's nothing, she said. So I said, I'm ready to do everything I can, something to soften the hearts. Pinkston, in tears, said he worries about his own children being targeted by police officers due to their race. He dismissed the health risk of the hunger strike as trivial compared with the health risk of encountering police. My children are 10 and 8, and I'm thinking, am I even going to see my kids grow up to be 18, he said. I know I'm crying, but that's just how much it is paining me. I'll stay out here for as long as it takes. Sato, Gutierrez's son, attributed the whole idea to his mother. Gutierrez said she had participated in one hunger strike previously, a human rights protest in her native Colombia. She has lived in San Francisco for some 40 years. I knew that something radical needed to be done, Gutierrez said. We march, we go to meetings, they don't care. They keep on going like nothing. Her son, Sato, believes his rap career... uh, balances his rap career with his time teaching at Gutierrez's preschool. We'll be sitting here because this is no joke. This is not some publicity stunt, Sato said. He asked that others support the hunger strikers' cause by going to City Hall to protest. For the next few days, or perhaps weeks, none of the four will go to work or eat, instead posting themselves outside the mission station until they get a reaction. If arrested, they said, they will continue their hunger strike in jail. The reason I I ran is to raise issues that have always been swept under the rug, Lindo, the candidate for supervisor, said. He, too, said that he sensed that other methods of protest were not having any effect. 
Protests don't work. Letters don't work. So I guess we'll put our own blood in their hands, he said. Lindo said his focus is on the chief and not on the police commission, officially the authority to which Sir answers, because it seems to him that Sir calls the shots. They haven't done a very good job either, but to us, they follow Sir's lead, he said. Sir has a lot of dirt on his hands. Text messages, lawsuits, being the highest paid police chief in the country, and for executions of people of color. Given the chance to speak with police officers, Gutierrez said she would encourage them to join her cause. If they really believe that the police department is here to protect us, they should be against these officers that made the text messages and ask for the chief to be fired, she said. They have a very important job to protect people, but they're not doing it. They can take a stand themselves. Uh, hours later and across the street, some 70 people gathered at Clarion Alley to hear from homeless and formerly homeless speakers who decried the recent shooting of Gongora, who lived in an encampment on Shotwell Street. When I heard about the shooting, it broke my heart, said Shira Noel, who works at the Homeless Youth Alliance and was homeless when she was young. It brought back so many memories of police brutality, of just trying to survive. Mary Howe, the executive director and co-founder of the Homeless Youth Alliance, called on housed allies to film police interactions with the homeless and be a witness to any brutality they see. Never allow what happened to Louise to continue happening, she said. Exert your privilege and do the right thing. Chief Sir faced a contentious town hall meeting in the wake of the April 7th shooting, where speakers called for his resignation and pushed for use of force reform within the department. Immediately after the shooting, Mayor Ed Lee pledged to crack down on homeless encampments citywide. In the days after Gungora's shooting, city workers and police officers visited the Shotwell Street encampment where he lived and moved some of the residents to shelters while destroying other residents' tents. Eyewitnesses to the shooting say they were being harassed by the police for what they had seen. At Thursday's press conference, Noel addressed the crackdown on encampments and condemned the atmosphere surrounding homelessness in San Francisco. The sweeps are not okay, the killings are not okay, and the destruction of property is not okay, she said. Brutality is it's it is affecting everybody, even you know higher class white people. You know they're they're getting harassed by police too. You see it on YouTube. The only thing is with us, with black and brown people, it's like the the police department is purposely coming after us. Yeah. And and then. There's situations where, okay, it gets to the media, but then they vilify us in the media. Yeah. You know, they pull up police records as if that has bearing on, okay, I'm not obeying what the officer is, is telling me to do. Does that mean I deserve to die now? So if I don't comply, if I, if I jaywalk across the street and the officer tells me to get across the street and get on the ground and I don't get on the ground, he has a right to shoot me because he feels threatened, quote unquote. Yeah, you know, yeah. so. It's all politics, it's all bullshit because it's, 
it's getting out of hand, and, and nobody in the political power is saying anything. From the mayor to the governor to the secretary of the state to the president, you know, even after um, what happened to Trayvon Martin and President Obama did his little speech about it and tried to personalize it, he didn't do shit about it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? He left it in the hands of the people. And so this is the result. Okay? This, if you're going to leave it in the hands of the people, yeah. then this is what we're going to do. Because yeah. the people are fed up. Yeah. The people are, we're, we're scared. I mean, if my house gets broken into and I'll call the police, they're probably going to think I'm the person who, you know what I'm saying, that broke into the house. You know what I mean? Then they draw guns on me, and I got to force down to the ground, and my rights are violated, and this and that, blase, blase. I don't want that for myself. I don't want that for my peers, and I definitely don't want that for my children. Yeah. You know, even though my children are half black, their complexion is still going to have them being judged. And for me... I want my children to grow up in a better world. Yeah. You know, that's what every parent has always ever wanted for their child, to do something to make life for their child easier. And so that's what I'm here for. I'm here because I grew up as a native of San Francisco. I grew up right down the street in Valencia Gardens when there used to be projects, living in roach and rat-infested units. But San Francisco has always been like one of the pioneer cities of this country where if there was ever a problem with authority, if San Francisco spoke out, the rest of the nation would follow. So hopefully in a situation like this where police brutality is running rapid throughout the whole nation, it's not just San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Baltimore, New York, Kansas City, LA. It's been going on since the beginning of time. Yeah. Even, I mean, shit. When, when is it gonna end, you know? Frustrated. Very frustrated. But I'm grateful for the support. Yeah, no, I just want to listen to support. Yeah, you know, so. Because it's not easy, you know. I know. I know mentally I've been prepared, but I know physically I'm not prepared for this shit. Yeah. Are you drinking or just not eating? Um, drinking. We're drinking. Like coconut, coconut water, water and water? Regular no, water. no, like, alcohol? Tea, no alcohol. Can I bring you tea? Uh, oh, yeah. Tea, okay, no good. sugar. We die if we're drinking alcohol. Yeah, okay. No, 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 I'm just asking. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, we die. Oh, yeah. Believe me, I, I, I would love a shot of Hennessy right now. <laughs> That's what I said, though. That's what I was like, let me do but, that. He's but there's like, no food in your stomach, you know. You, the alcohol is more increased than your Yeah. Body, when people you know? say, like, oh, well, there's those people that are drunk, and it's like, well, actually, they the might whole... be trying to it's... get warm. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Why do people smoke cigarettes? Yeah. Well, it suppresses yeah. your appetite. Yeah. Exactly. Why do you do drugs? Why do we all do drugs? Because we can. And because, you know, life is tough. It's, uh, it's one escape, certainly. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, if, when we don't do those things, I mean, we do 
we buy more shit that we don't need to yeah. make us feel better about ourselves because we're kind of pieces of shit. What's your favorite tea? Um, tea? And uh, I don't have a and particular favorite. favorite. We build up this yeah. separatism. Like uh, so this is we're listening to folks who are protesting outside the Mission Police Station, and the first person who spoke uh, was Ike Pinkston, and we'll be going into some more. Uh, words from other folks as well. And as we can hear, uh, there were folks who were kind of uh, passing by and, and speaking up. So recorded all of these int interactions and you can hear from other folks who are uh, passing by as well, uh, their interactions. There's like these techies and these other people. And yeah. We're all kind of all getting fucked in the same way. Oh yeah. We're all oppressed. I mean, yeah. we're all oppressed. Like we can't be who we are. Like if we want to wear a dress, like it's strange or if we want to do something else like it's it's already like you're already you're in a box and you, you're already given a box you're born you're given a box yeah you're trying to break out of that box you know some of us are lucky enough that we have to break out of our box because it's our spirit too yeah other people are just they have a more privileged state so they can be more lulled to sleep for longer yeah because they have that luxury yeah some of us like just can't for yeah. as much as we try to like do all the right things we're still the wrong shade right right so it's you can't move differently in the you know i just spoke to some guy yesterday it's um, not surprising at that park that's right in front of city hall and we're um it was 420 and there's cypress hill um concert happening he came by and he was like he's like i'm embarrassed and i was like why and he's like because you know i don't have food and you know i gotta beg for stuff i was like you're embarrassed for a system that is like stacked against you. Like, I'm sorry that I I am not doing enough to create a better system because we don't deserve this. We don't deserve to beg for things like it, the land is supposed to provide. Yeah, yeah. There's enough um, to go around. The, this this is not the way it's supposed to be. Right, right. And and at least like maybe we screwed up, but okay, you know, benefit the doubt, like. From this day forward, we're trying to move towards a different kind of consciousness and trying to think differently and think about each other differently. Yes. And, and you know, celebrate our different, celebrate what we have different, but pretty much be held together by what we're experiencing the same, which is like we're just we're humans, we're people, we're, we get our heartbreak and broken, we like uh, experience adversity, we have loss, we experience suffering, like, these are all things that we need to bind us together rather than separate, but because, like, your problem is different uh, than my problem because we're like, unrealistic and it's cruel to create this divide. Oh, yeah. Well, the folks in power want to keep us divided. and Yeah, I mean, I mean, those rules are really keeping us divided, and they yeah. really are, like, you people are scary, you guys are predators. So every time I look at you, you know, you're just going to look like, you know, the person I fear. Yeah. Just different. And it's like, no, if anything, like, like, uh, we have a huge sense of community because that's how we survive. Yeah. You know, uh, part of some of our cultures is like, we operate from a space of me, not me. Yeah. And for, you know, some brothers are like here trying to like make, I just, I want us to realize that 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 danger that people don't give a shit, it's, it's just a matter of, it's just a, a matter of time before it becomes all of us. Oh yeah. Come. 
we've already become enslaved in our minds, so we need to break out of that. But we need to, you know, just just start giving people like a like a a fair enough chance of in the race. Yeah. You know, and there's plenty. Thank you very much for, for sharing that. So if folks want to come by and support, um, as soon as like there's water there and other liquids, yeah. um, other things, do you feel any like blankets or? Yeah, company. company? I okay. mean, uh, we're hoping to get uh, people to print out like flyers and stuff. So pretty much just anyone that comes by, call the mayor, ask for, you know, make your own, make your own like stuff, but sure. you know, become informed about what's happening in your city. Okay. You should yeah. make your own decision. Yeah. I think that it's uh, the evidence speaks for itself. Oh yeah, yeah. So, and if folks are pretty much here consistently throughout the day. Okay. Yeah. People have been coming through all day, and it's really great. It's really motivating. It makes me feel like not alone. It makes me feel really all by my community. Yeah. All oh, right on. Cool. Well, I'll play this on the show tomorrow. Anything you wanted to add? For sure. I see. Okay, I'll let you know if I need it, Mom. The way I see the problem is being like realistic and pragmatic. It's a human problem. You know, I mean, it's it's in our d- DNA. You know, to like self-preservation, you know, and that goes for all of us, you know, even police, you know, which is the reason why most of them are police officers is because most police officers would not be able to get another job that where they make the same amount of money and get the same benefits, you know, so it's a very, you know, and with the good retirement plan. So most police officers are police officers for, you know, self-preservation, survival, you know, not because they want to make the sacrifice, you know, to go out there and, you know, be, you know, in fight for peace and, you know, justice, you know, most officers, because it's a job, you know, and, um, and so based on that, because humans are imperfect, the system will always be imperfect, yeah. you know, I mean, we can think of like the perfect political system, you know, whether it's, you know, socialism, communism, capitalism, whatever, or whatever ism we can think of, you know, you still have to plug people in, imperfect humans in to run it, you know, so I really hope that us as a species, you know, evolves to a higher conscious state, you know, where we have more compassion and empathy for one another, but the reality is what I see happening is quite the opposite, you know, I believe that humans, we've evolved to a certain point, and we kind of became too smart for our own good, because our evolution has created this modern lifestyle which has enabled us to basically devolve 
because nowadays you don't need to be as sharp and to have the acuteness and awareness and the mindfulness that ancient man needed in order to survive you know nowadays you know one can be quite inept you know and yet survive yeah. because you know we've made it that way and I don't know if it's a good or bad thing you know like trying to look at it without judgment you know I used to look at things and look at the woes of the world and the direction we're going in you know it would weigh heavy on my heart and now that I look at it without judgment and it just is what it is all I can hope for is that some way somehow we can end the suffering for all sentient beings and I know it's very romanticized and idealistic but that's really all I can hope for but back to the reality you know with society as it is now and what's in place right now in 2016 it's like we've gone too far you know to turn back and to change things you know all we can do is hope that we can facilitate change slowly because that's the only way it's going to happen because the monster the system you know or the matrix whatever you want to call it it's so big and powerful now that it has a life of its own you know and we almost have to play by its rules you know and so I mean unless some ma- something major happens which unites all the people of the world you know a universal awakening or consciousness you know I don't see things changing drastically anytime soon because with the exponential population growth that's going to happen in the next 20 years means more need for resources that much more pollution that much more manufacturing needs to happen which creates more you know toxic waste you know so yeah i mean things are really going to get a whole lot worse if they are ever going to get better you know and all i can do is stay strong guys we're with you stay strong yeah, all, all like all I can do is hope. Yeah. That's it. Right yeah, for sure. Thanks very much. Yeah. What's Thank your name you. again? My name is Max. Max Berman. Nice to meet That's you. That's my Berman. grandfather's name. Oh yeah. Okay. And Ray. Ray. My grandmother's name is Ray. All right. Cool. All right, so I wanted to thank uh, Ike and Ray and Max for for speaking last night and for the folks out there in front of the Mission Police Station. Again, folks can check them out. It can go by. It's on Valencia and 17th. So I'll be playing some more prints, and then we'll be back with some more stories. And... uh, and this is a request. Uh, Brandon, uh, our friend Brandon Griggs, requested uh, the song called "Delirious." So we'll be hearing that right now.
and it's uh, coming up momentarily here. Um, having a little bit of technical difficulties. Um, okay, so we're having some trouble with that, so I'll play a different one, and then we'll be back with uh, some more stories.
was prince of course with delirious and before that heard another prince song also from the controversy album which is called private joy oh you know it makes uh, reading the news a lot much more bearable having prince play uh in the meantime so perhaps we'll keep that up 
uh, as we continue on with the show. So the next story coming up comes from New York, and this is uh, from Think Progress, and there's been a lot of voter suppression all across the country. We, of course, heard about in Arizona, and then New York, there's also quite a bit here. And this came from this comes from uh, April 19th, and a bit's happened since then. This is from Think Progress. Uh, New York's primary isn't going smoothly so far. Uh, less than halfway through primary election day in New York, a Maine voter protection hotline has already received hundreds of phone calls from people with complaints, issues, and questions about their voter registrations and polling sites. New Yorkers have been turned away due to problems with their voter registrations. Polling sites have been closed, and equipment has been malfunctioning at sites across New York, according to Kristen Clark, president and executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Clark's organization runs the election election protection hotline, which seeks to help voters work through challenges they may experience at the polls. The traffic to our polling hotlines has been pretty significant, Clark told Think Progress on Tuesday afternoon. We're seeing a high volume of calls, which, which suggests this is not an election that is problem-free. The most frequent complaints received so far have been from voters who are confused about the New York's closed primary rules, Clark said. In New York, only registered Democrats can vote in the Democratic primary, and only Republicans can vote in the Republican primary. Registered New York voters who wanted to switch parties had to do so by October 9, 2015, more than six months ago, and many people didn't realize they had to do it so early. New York has the earliest change of party deadline in the country. The result was that many New Yorkers showed up at their polls thinking they could vote, only to be turned away, Clark said. One of those voters was Bayville resident Callie Ventresca, who changed her party affiliation from independent to Democrat on March 20th, five days before New York's registration deadline for new voters. Ventresca told Think Progress she didn't uh, realize the deadline for existing voters was different than the deadline for new voters. She fully expected to be able to cast a ballot. I'm pissed, she said. Other voters, however, insisted they did everything correctly with their voter registrations and were still turned away because their names were not on the voter rolls. There are certainly some people who believe they did everything right, they, they registered well in advance, they registered and indicated their party preference, and expected to be able to vote in their party primary, and their names were not on the rolls, Clark said. In addition, voters in Brooklyn have reported that their polling sites were closed. Clark said that one site at 195 Graham Avenue was closed due to technical difficulties. That sounds like what I say on the on the, on this show when I can't get the my iTunes to work. Uh, but for a polling place to have technical difficulties, hmm. Poll workers there reportedly directed voters to another alternative site and told voters they should go there and cast affidavit ballots. Clark said. A polling place in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, also opened more than two hours after it was supposed to, according to 538 chief economics reporter Ben Castleman. Though it was supposed to open at 6 a.m., Castleman said, his polling place didn't open until 8.15 a.m., apparently because it was a new polling location and there was no coordinator on site. Eek. Malfunctioning equipment was also reported at multiple sites in Brooklyn. Clark said voting machines at the 215 McDougal Street polling location were reported broken. Our voter indicated that at some point the police arrived and locked up the voting machines because they were not working. Clark said, we contacted the Board of Elections and they said they'd send someone there. Another voter reported on Twitter that ballot scanners were malfunctioning at his polling site in Bushwick, Brooklyn. A poll worker reportedly told him that ballots there won't be counted today, but will be at a later date. 
So far, many of the voter complaints have come from Brooklyn, Clark said. Brooklyn's been well represented for sure, she said. Clark speculated that the reason so many calls have come from Brooklyn may be because of the sheer size and voter turnout there. Brooklyn has, however, been the subject of some attention lately after WNYC um, reported that Brooklyn has experienced an unprecedented, unexplained drop in registered Democratic voters. According to WNYC's analysis, the number of active registered, uh, registered Democrats dropped there by 63,558 voters between November 2015 and April 2016. That translates into a 7% drop in registered Democrats in the borough. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio has demanded an explanation for the unprecedented drop in registered Brooklyn Democratic voters. Now, I wonder if there was a reason behind this, or maybe if there was a Democratic candidate who was from Brooklyn who was getting a lot of support, and maybe the person he was running against uh, maybe has a hand in tampering with elections. I don't know. This is just an idea, putting it out there. Okay, um, moving onwards, another story. Oh, I can't think of any good segue to go into this next one. Ugh, just, I mean, things that are unfair and upsetting and enraging. That's, an, that's a segue. That's a continual segue for the show. Uh, this comes from The Intercept, and this was written by Robert Mackey. Um, Iraqi refugee kicked off plane for speaking Arabic in L.A. Says Islamophobia boosts ISIS. And this was written by Robert Mackey, and it was published on April 18th. Oh, and it was updated on April 19th. Oh, an Iraqi college student was removed from a Southwest Airlines flight in Los Angeles this month and interrogated by the FBI because a fellow passenger overheard him speaking Arabic during, during a boarding process. The student, Carol, uh, Carol Dean uh, Makzumi, uh, a senior at the University of California, Berkeley, was granted asylum in the United States after his father was killed by Saddam Hussein's secret police. He told The Intercept that he wants Americans to know about what happened to him because the current wave of anti-Muslim hysteria in the United States is counterproductive since it reinforces the propaganda of the Islamic extremists. Americans who see all Muslims as potential terrorists, he said, are playing straight into the rhetoric of the Islamic State. They fall into the trap. Critics of Donald Trump's anti-Muslim rhetoric, including Hillary Clinton, have argued that, during, that doing so only validates the worldview of the Islamist extremists, who argue that they are engaged in a clash of civilizations with the West, and Muslims are not welcome or safe outside their self-proclaimed salafet. After Trump called for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States in, September, in December, Clinton warned that he was sending a message to Muslims here in the United States and literally around the world that there is a clash of civilizations, that there is some kind of Western plot or war against Islam, which then, I believe, fans the flames of radicalization. At the, as the Daily Californian first reported, Makzumi had boarded an April 6th flight to Oakland early due to his frequent flyer status when he noticed another passenger staring at him as he spoke by phone to his uncle in Baghdad. After he ended the call by telling his uncle that he would phone him again after landing, he used the uh, Arabic word inshallah, a common phrase meaning God willing. He saw the woman get up from her seat and approach the airline staff. Makzumi said that he was then removed from the plane by an Arabic-speaking member of the Southwest staff, Shoaib Ahmed, who questioned him in the presence of security officers on the jetway about why he had been speaking Arabic on the plane, because it's a language. 
Makzumi, a political science major who hopes to return to Iraq one day to help rebuild the nation, explained that he had been excitedly telling his uncle about an event he had attended the night before, a discussion with Ban Ki-moon, the uh, UN Secretary General at the Los Angeles World Affairs Council. The student, who also runs a popular Facebook group devoted to national reconciliation in Iraq, had a video of himself asking the Secretary General a question about Iraq's strategy for retaking territory from Islamic State militants. He showed it to the Southwest Gate agent on his phone. After initially apologizing for causing a disruption, Makzumi said that he got frustrated when the Southwest agent blamed him for delaying the flight. I told him, no, this is what Islamophobia got this country into. According to the student, the agent was angered by his comment and told him, you know what, you're not, get, you're not going back on the plane. Makzumi was then taken back to the gate where he said he was accused of trying to leave a bag on the plane and searched in front of other passengers. He finally teared up when a police officer asked if he was concealing a knife and touched my private parts. The police even wanted to handcuff him at one stage for texting his mother to let her know what was happening. The incident, he said, triggered a flood of bad memories of life under the Iraqi dictatorship he escaped in 2002 with his mother and a younger brother, Hamedi, who has Down syndrome and needs constant care. The student was then interrogated by three FBI agents who told him that the passenger who was eavesdropping on his call thought she had heard him use the word shahid, the Arabic word for martyr, at one point. The word is one of a handful of Arabic expressions commonly used by American bloggers and radio hosts obsessed with the threat of Islamic, Islamist terrorism. Makzumi denied that he had said any such thing. Makzumi told KPIX5, the Bay Area CBS news affiliate, one of the FBI agents said, tell us everything about martyr, the word martyr, which is shahid. She heard, she, heard the word, she heard the wrong word because I said, Shalah, not Shahid, Makzumi said, he told the FBI. Basically, they associated that word with jihad. The federal agents who asked him about his father, Khalid Makzumi, a former diplomat who, his son said, was abducted and killed by Saddam Hussein's internal security service after reporting that a son-in-law of the Iraqi dictator was involved in corruption. About two and a half hours after his flight left, Makzumi was finally released and given a refund by the same Southwest employee who had taken him off the plane. He then flew home on Delta and spent a few days alone with his family, sleeping a lot. When I came home, I was very shocked, he said. There was ample testimony in Makzumi's moderate political leanings online, from his writing on Iraq for Huffington Post to what is posted on his own Facebook page, to the anti-sectarian group he started on the social network United for Iraq, which has more than 130,000 subscribers. Two weeks before the incident, for instance, he shared an illustration denigrating the Islamic State's delusions of grandeur. Uh, last week, he called Southwest and was told that he would have no trouble flying with the airline in the future, but was offered no apology. The airline told the Washington Post that its crew made the decision to investigate a passenger report of potentially threatening comments overheard on board our aircraft. Safety is our primary focus, and our employees are trained to make decisions to safeguard the security of our crews and customers on every flight, the company said in a statement. We would not remove a passenger from a flight without a collaborative decision rooted in established procedures. The airline also rejected the suggestion that removing a passenger for speaking Arabic constituted bias, saying, Southwest neither condones nor tolerates discrimination of any kind. Since the incident was brought to light on Thursday by the student newspaper at Berkeley, Makzumi has been inundated with offers to bring a lawsuit against the airline, seeking financial damages. He says he is not interested in money, but hopes to raise awareness of the climate of fear in his adopted country and hear Southwest admit that what it did was wrong. 
Money comes and goes, he says. But human dignity, if it goes, who will bring it back? We must fight for this. He made a similar comment in a video interview with the Associated Press published on Tuesday evening. Uh, when I sat down on the plane, I called my uncle through Viper. He lives uh, in Baghdad, the capital. And uh, I told him that, you know, um, I'm sorry, I, I couldn't uh, ask you a question, but the event was really good. And then while I was uh, speaking with him, uh, one lady, she was sitting in front of me, she uh, turned around and she started looking at me. And I felt there was something weird. So uh, she was sitting on the seat that is in front of me. Two minutes later, uh, the one of the I think Southwest employee uh, he came to me he said sir, sir I need to step out of the plane right now and there was three police officers um, and he started uh, telling me that as if I am having a serious conversation and I told him no I was talking to my uncle I went to an event I pulled up my phone I showed him the video and he said you know that why would I speak in the plane and you know the environment uh, around us you know what's happening on the airport and I told him that I am sorry I didn't mean to do that and he said look what you look what you um, what you have done the plane is going to be delayed for about 20 30 minutes because of you and i told him no this is i think what islamophobia got this country into and the moment i said it he was very angry and he said you know what you're not going back to the plane and the police officer reached to his device and he said call fbi call fbi and that it was an overwhelming moment when you know someone calling the fbi it's uh, it's big and she said khairuddin like, Caroline, you need to be honest with us and tell us everything about Martyr. And I, I just looked at her, I was like, I have, I, you know, I looked at her, I said, I have never said that word. I am waiting for an apology, and I have said that many times. They singled the wrong person. They discriminated against uh, a student who came to this country as an Iraqi refugee to pursue his dreams. Islamophobia is real and it's been used by many people and it's time to say enough is enough. And perhaps that can be a theme of the show, enough is enough. Uh, so further on in the article, it says uh, similar incidents have been reported in recent months in the United States and Europe the, as fear of terrorism has spiked. Several have involved Southwest. Last week, Hakima Abdul, a Somali-American from Maryland, was forced off a Southwest flight in Chicago when a flight attendant stopped her from switching seats with another passenger, and she objected. According to the Council on American-Islamic Relations, Abdullah, whose English is limited, was reduced to tears and suffered extreme distress and anxiety after the crew summoned the police to remove her from the plane. In November, two Palestinian Americans, Mahar Khalil and Anas Ayad, were subjected to questioning by the police because a fellow passenger heard them speaking Arabic while boarding a Southwest flight in Chicago. The men were eventually allowed to board, but Khalil was then harassed by passengers who demanded that he open a small white box he was carrying. So I shared my baklava with them, he told the local news station in Philadelphia, where he owns a pizza place. After that incident, Southwest issued the same exact statement to the media. Safety is our primary focus, and our employees are trained to make decisions to safeguard the security of our crews and customers on every flight.
Last week in Vienna, Hassan Dawachi, an Iraqi biochemist who has lived in Britain for six years, was forced off an EasyJet flight to London because another passenger saw him texting his wife and grew alarmed. It transpired a woman passenger had seen me texting my wife in Arabic, my mother language, and for some inexplicable reason, suspected I was a terrorist, he told the Daily Mail. EasyJet later refunded the money Devachi was forced to pay for another flight and issued the sort of apology Makzumi is still waiting, waiting for from Southwest. We acknowledge that we did not do enough to assist Mr. Devachi, and we have been in touch with him since to apologize for his experience, the airline said. And an update, last Tuesday, after initially refusing to provide any details of the incident to reporters, Southwest responded to a wave of negative publicity by issuing a new statement addressing Maksumi's treatment. Southwest does not condone nor tolerate discrimination of any kind. Uh, for more info about the incident on board flight 4620, and they provide a link. Uh, in the revised statement, the airline said that the passenger who reported the student to the crew said that she spoke Arabic and had overheard comments perceived to be threatening. There is no evidence as to whether the unnamed passenger's claim was correct, or, if so, what level of fluency she has in Arabic. But Southwest's defense of its conduct assumes that the woman did hear what she said she heard. It was the content of the passenger's conversations, not the language used, that prompted the report leading to our investigation, the airline insisted. This seems to be consistent with Maksumi's account to The Intercept and other news outlets, in which he said that he was asked by the FBI agents if he had used Arabic word, if he had used the Arabic word for martyr in his conversation. However, he strenuously denies that he did that he strenuously denies that he did use that word. Southwest rejects any, the implication that bias against Arabic speakers or Muslims played any part in the incident, but it is not clear that the airline would automatically remove a passenger who was a native English speaker from a flight for comments a fellow traveler said she overheard, without any other evidence that the person did make a threat. Later on Tuesday, the airline tried to spin news reports on the incident in its favor, arguing that Maksumi was at fault for mentioning the Islamic State in his phone conversation with his uncle. Brandy King, a spokeswoman for Southwest Airlines, said in an email to Nagar Mortazavi, a freelance journalist, We've seen multiple media reports where Mr. Maksumi confirms he openly discussed a terrorist organization on the phone minutes before his flight was scheduled to depart. This seems to be a reference to the fact that Makzumi said he told his uncle proudly that he was asked that he had asked the UN Secretary General about Iraq's strategy for retaking territory from Islamic State militants. While it remains unclear if this was in fact what prompted his removal, and Southwest made no mention of that in its initial replies to reporters, there is something perverse in the idea that a student who is an online activist against the Islamic State should be barred from flying for even mentioning the group's name in a discussion about how to defeat it. So again, you can find this article on The Intercept, and it was written by Robert Mackey. So um, moving onwards, we'll take another music break, and we have another uh, request here for another, um, another Prince song that we'll be getting to, and this also comes from our friend uh, Brandon Griggs, who is a big fan of uh, No Doubt. And apparently Prince and No Doubt have made a few... A uh, few songs together, collaborations, and I didn't know about this. So this is a song called Waiting Room. Uh, so it's No Doubt and Prince. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so that was uh, No Doubt with Prince in a song called Waiting Room. I've never heard that before, so thank you, Brandon, for suggesting that. So uh, the next story is, uh, it comes from the Daily Beast. And as we know, the legislation that's been anti-LGBT has had a lot of issues, a lot of really negative impacts on people and their mental health. And this comes from the the Daily Beast. Uh, After North Carolina's law, trans suicide hotline calls double. And this article was published on April 19th, and it was written by Samantha Allen. 
Being denied basic human rights, like bathroom access, has life-threatening consequences. Anti-transgender bathroom laws, like North Carolina's HB2, are not just inconvenient for transgender people. They may also be life-threatening. Greta Gustava Martella, the co-founder of Trans Lifeline, a crisis hotline for transgender people, told the Daily Beast that their call volume has nearly doubled since North Carolina restricted the use of public bathrooms based on birth certificate gender markers. This would normally be a time of year when we would be in an upswing, Martella told the Daily Beast, explaining that suicide prevalence generally rises in the spring. But to her... But to her, but to her, the steepness of this increase is indicative of some event happening rather than the normal seasonal fluctuations. Trans Lifeline data shared with the Daily Beast shows that before Governor Pat McCrory signed HB2 on March 23rd, the hotline's daily volume peaked at around 200 incoming calls. After the law, the peaks started getting higher. And they have a chart here. And you can just see that it's steadily rising. Uh, from April 8th to April 16th, the most recent date included in the data set, the hotline has only seen two days below 200 incoming calls. On April 13th, they received what Martella notes is an unprecedented 357 calls. When asked if the call volume increase would be attri- could be attributed to any media attention directed at Transline at Trans Lifeline post HB2, Martella cited internal analysis showing that the hotline had already reached two thirds of U.S. Con- counties, basically all the populated places in the United States, within six months of its 2014 launch. I don't think that news stories are what's driving people to our hotline anymore," she explained. The spike in calls to the Trans Lifeline is sadly unsurprising. If I had to guess what's being impacted, I think it's probably people's hope for the future, Martella said, citing recent legislative attacks on transgender people that have been endorsed by the Republican National Committee. In February, the Human Rights Campaign reported that there were 29 anti-transgender bathroom bills under consideration at the state level. Many of these bills perpetuate the harmful myth that transgender people are dangerous predators. According to a recent Survey USA poll, an astonishing 56% of North Carolina voters believe that transgender bathroom use poses a security risk for women and children. In reality, there are zero reported instances of a transgender person harassing a non-transgender person in a bathroom. If anything, it's non-transgender people who pose a threat to transgender people in the bathroom. 9% of transgender respondents to a Williams Institute survey reported experiencing physical assault in a public restroom, and 68% reported experiencing verbal harassment. Being denied access to basic bodily functions based on an urban legend, it turns out, can take a deeply personal toll. Bathroom access is a basic human right. It's something we all need wherever we live, said Dr. Christy L. Seelman, an assistant professor in the School of Social Work at Georgia State University in an interview with the Daily Beast. To deny someone the ability to use a public restroom is an attempt to deny that person basic dignity, she added. Such a situation has a profound impact on well-being, including mental health. Dr. Steelman is the author of a February 2016 study published in the Journal of Homosexuality, which analyzed survey responses from 2,325 transgender people who had attended college and found that denial of access to bathrooms and denial of access to campus housing due to being trans were statistically significantly associated with with lifetime suicide attempt. 
This is not the first time that the link between the bathroom access and mental health has come up in her career. What I've heard from transgender people in my past research is that not having access to a bathroom heightens their anxiety and stress, leading them to try to plan their daily lives around when and where they can find a bathroom, sometimes even getting to a point of dehydration or social isolation, she noted. Her latest study research said uh, that the association between bathroom barriers and trans suicidality remained significant even after controlling f for other experiences of bullying. This suggests that there may be a distinct relationship between the stress of not being able to use bathrooms and one's mental health, the study noted. Dr. Seelman cautions that we cannot yet interpret casualty uh, causality uh, from the data, but believes that it should still act as a warning to lawmakers who seek to restrict bathroom use for transgender people. We know that stigma and lifeline discrimination influence suicide rates, whether we are talking about transgender people or another marginalized group, she told the Daily Beast. Policies like HB2 are not solving a problem. They are actually making things worse. Given its sample of college attendees, Dr. Seelman's study would also hold special significance for the University of North Carolina school system, which announced on April 5th that it would require all of its campuses to comply with HB2. In the midst of the current bathroom panic and its potentially grave consequences, there are emerging signs that the tide is starting to turn against this recent wave of state-level anti-transgender legislation. Perhaps fearing the backlash that North Carolina's law has received, Tennessee lawmakers tabled their own anti-transgender bathroom bill until 2017. With regards to that bill, transgender teenager Henry Seaton had specifically warned legislators that restroom restrictions could increase the already alarming suicide rate in his community. When you don't have a restroom to use, he said, that really encourages those numbers to increase exponentially. And on Tuesday, a federal appeals court issued a landmark ruling defending Gavin Grimm, a 16-year-old transgender boy who sought to use the boys' bathroom at his Virginia high school. As BuzzFeed's Chris Geidner reports, that ruling reaffirms the Department of Education's interpretation of Title IX, which holds that discrimination against transgender people is a form of sex discrimination. McCrory, North Carolina's governor, said Tuesday that he would respect the ruling, although it is not yet clear what actions his administration will take. These and other victories could help lower the suicide risk in an already endangered community. According to the Trevor Project, one quarter of transgender youth report attempting suicide. Researchers have already concluded that the suicide risk for transgender people depends on broader social support, but now it is becoming clear that it is all that is also directly tied to having a safe place to pee. While courts and state legislatures continue to debate bathroom access, Martella's and uh, Seelman's data should serve as potent reminders that trans lives are on the line. And on a personal note, I can certainly relate to that. I myself have been asked to be removed from bathrooms. It hasn't happened in a long time, but it's really unpleasant and quite shitty. And I know a number of numerous people have this has happened to and just imagine again trying to get your basic needs met and not being able to and just how horrific that is and it's also it's the folks uh it's like this it's like it's so backwards it's these people they people they, the idea is to protect women and children yet without even thinking about how about the women and children who are trans themselves and it's oftentimes it's the non-transgender people who are causing the problems so if you're talking about protecting people it's trans people who should be protected 
And with that note, I'm trying to find a good a good Prince song that will go uh, that will go well with uh, uh, will go well with with this story. I don't know. How about Sign of the Times? That's kind of depressing. Um, but I said it, so we'll we'll play it, and then we'll be back with some more news. Chances girlfriend came across a needle and soon she did the same. At home there were 17 year old boys and their idea of fun is being in a gang called the Disciples High on Crack, toting a machine gun. church and kill everyone inside you turn on the telly and every other story is telling you somebody died my sister killed a baby cause she couldn't afford to feed it and it was sending people to the moon in september my cousin tried reefer for the very first time now he's doing horse it's june Time. 
And welcome back. That was Prince with a sign of the times. And some more disturbing news. Uh, I, I wish I, there was some non-disturbing news. Maybe there is out there. Uh, if there are, please let us know. You can call in 415-550-0511. Uh, so, of course, there's been the, the water crisis in Flint and in many other places. And uh, one of the women who was in, filing a lawsuit uh, was just found uh, she's been killed. So... That's fucked up. And I'm going to read a little bit about that. And this comes from MI Live, MI as in Michigan, live.com. A woman in leading Flint water crisis lawsuit slain in twin killing. And this was written by Gary Ridley, and this came out uh, yesterday. Flint, Michigan, a woman at the center of the bell of a bellwether Flint water crisis lawsuit was one of the two women who were shot to death inside a townhouse earlier this week. Sasha Ivana Bell was one of the first of a growing number of people to file a lawsuit in connection to the Flint water crisis after she claimed that her child had been lead poisoned. Bell was found dead April 19th in the 2600 block of Ridgecrest Drive at the Ridgecrest Village townhouses. Sequoia Renee Reed was also found shot to death in the home. An unarmed one-year-old child was also found inside of the Ridgecrest home when Bell's body was discovered and was taken into custody by Child Protective Services. Police declined to confirm if it was Bell's child discovered in the home. Sasha was a lovely young woman who cared deeply for her family and especially for her young child, said her attorney, Corey M. Stern. Her tragic and senseless death has created a void in the lives of so many people that loved her. Hopefully, her child will be lifted up by the love and support from everyone who cared deeply for Sasha. Bell's case was one of 64 lawsuits filed on behalf of 144 children by Stern's firm, New York-based Levy Konigsberg, and Flint-based Robinson Carter and Crawford. The lawsuit named six companies that had various responsibilities with respect to the treatment, monitoring, and safety of the Flint water prior to and during the Flint water crisis, according to her attorneys. The case also named three individual government or former government employees who played significant roles in the alleged misconduct that led to the alleged poisoning of thousands of children in Flint, her attorneys claim. The Bell case, however, played an important role in determining the future of the more than five dozen other lawsuits that were filed. Initially, Bell's case and the others were filed in Genesee Circuit Court. However, they were transferred to U.S. District Court on a motion from one of the defendants, engineering company Lockwood, Andrews, and Noonan. However, Ann Arbor U.S. District Judge John Corbett O'Meara ruled April 13th that Bell's case should return to the state court, claiming it lacked jurisdiction to hear the case. Stern said that the case will continue and a representative will be appointed for Bell's child. The ruling also forced the other 63 cases to be returned to state court. Flint police say they have a person in custody in connection with the, to the slayings of Bell and Reed. No charges have yet been filed. And then separately, there's been another murder, and this um, comes from WNEM.com, and this was, came out uh, yesterday, and this was written by uh, Brianna uh, Otsarczak. And this is a Flint water employee found dead at Lapeer County home. Uh, and this is Lapeer County, Michigan. 
A Flint Water Department employee was found dead on April 16th. Matthew McFarland, 43, of Otter Lake, was found dead at a residence in Otter Lake by a friend. His friend called 911. There are no signs of foul play in, in McFarland's death, police said. Police have not released the cause of death. The Lapeer County Medical Examiner's Office performed an autopsy, but the results did not show an immediate cause of death, police said. An examiner's office will perform additional tests, including a toxicology report, to determine the cause of death, McFarland was an employee at the Flint Water Department. His death remains under investigation. Now, uh, one does not need to be a detective to, uh, I guess, be perhaps cynical or curious about the circumstances behind both of these deaths. And when there's a scandal like this, of this magnitude, and there are people in positions of power who refuse to admit responsibility or take responsibility, uh, the idea that folks who are involved or who are um, perhaps speaking out about it or perhaps know something um, that they that their lives would be taken it just uh, it's just uh, disgusting and it just I would say if anything adds to the guilt of the folks who knew that the water was was tainted and did not do anything about it so uh, um, that's quite upsetting news so, moving on, I think I promised, I always, pro- I don't promise, but I oftentimes suggest that perhaps there will be a positive news story to get to, and again, I guess it depends on how we look at things, and uh, I'm going to go off and look for a positive news story for us. Um, there are good things happening, there are people speaking out, so that's, that's something that's good. And in the meantime, I'll play some more prints here. Thank you. 
and welcome back to the weekly review. And that was Prince with When You Were Mine. Uh, I promised there'd be a positive news story, and here it is. Um, I am grateful to know some of the folks involved with this this project. And this is uh, for transgender New Yorkers, a center of their own in the Bronx. And in the future, we'll most likely have Mr. Chris, uh, one of the founders, calling in on the show. And really grateful that uh, this that this is happening. So this is from the New York Times, and it came out on March 20th, and this was written by Winnie Who. Uh, Eli Berry cannot go to stores or restaurants with being asked if he is a man or a woman. A mall security guard once demanded that he show identification to use a public men's room. But soon, Mr. Berry will have a space of his own, a center for transgender people. The Bronx Trans Collective, the new drop-in center near Yankee Stadium, will aim to bring people together who are often overlooked or disconnected even in New York City, which is considered to be the birthplace of the modern gay rights movement. The center will help transgender people get surgeries, hormone treatments, mental health counseling, and assistance with legal name changes and job searches, among other services. It will also host regular support groups, youth counseling, meditation, and yoga classes, and cookouts on its back terrace. The center is important for me because it is going to give me a convenience, safety is going to give me convenience, safety, and a sense of community, said Mr. Barry, 28, a consolidated Edison worker who plans to stop by the center every week. The Bronx Trans Collective will be the city's first major multi-service center dedicated specifically to transgender people, offering programs and services that were previously scattered across different sites. It is a result of a partnership between Councilman Richie Torres, a Bronx Democrat, and a coalition of six community organizations to address what many see as scant attention to the needs of transgender people, especially in poor and minority neighborhoods outside Manhattan. Transgender New Yorkers of color living in poverty face a level of discrimination most of us will never know, Mr. Torres said. We're creating a model for the rest of the city to follow. The Bronx Center will open next month at a time when the challenges and the concerns faced by transgender people have gained national attention. Though they have traditionally been part of the larger gay rights movement, often identified as lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender, transgender people and their advocates have pointed out that their needs tend to be different because their experience is primarily about gender identity, while the others focus on sexual orientation. When you talk about LGBT, the T is often left off, or lowercase. It's not really included, said Mr. Chris, the executive director of Community Kinship Life, an advocacy group based in the Bronx that is part of the coalition. This will be putting the T back into the forefront of the services of the community. In New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio, a Democrat, signed an executive order this month to allow people to use a single-sex bathroom or a locker room consistent with the gender they identify with at public parks, city agency offices, and other municipal properties. One of the administration's signature programs, the Municipal Identification Card, known as IDNYC, already allows people to designate their own gender. Mr. de Blasio, who established a commission on gender equity last year, said in his State of the City address last month that the IDNYC card had provided a transgender woman with the identification required to pick up her nephews from school. Though an accurate count is difficult to establish, city officials estimate there are roughly 25,000 transgender residents across the five boroughs. Many live in the Bronx, where services can be limited or not well publicized. Some transgender people said they would go to a center in Manhattan to find out about services in the Bronx. Alicia King, 31, a single mother in the Bronx, used to take 
two trains to a Manhattan clinic for hormone therapy and mental health counseling. But with the help of Community Kinship Life, she was able to find a treatment center closer to home last year. Ms. King said the Bronx Center would bring more opportunities. I'm excited, she said. We need a safe space, a non-judgmental space where we can be ourselves and get to know each other. Though the center will focus primarily on reaching residents of the borough, it will serve anyone who walks in, its organizers said. The Bronx Trans Collective will be housed in a basement office at 937 Summit Avenue, which typically rents for about $1,200 a month. For the center's first year, the space is being donated, along with utilities and some computer equipment, by the building's managing agent, Community Outreach Consulting Firm, which is affiliated, which is affiliated with the Bronx Parent Housing Network. I'm a community member, and I believe in equality for all people, said Victor Rivera, the chief executive of both organizations, who is a friend of Mr. Torres's. Mr. Torres allocated $20,000 in city funds to finance the center's startup costs, and other organizations in the coalition also chipped in. The lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community center provided desks, tables, and chairs. Destination Tomorrow paid $600 for the intercom security system. The internet and phone bills will be split among the groups. In addition to Community Kinship Life, the other coalition members are Islan Nettles Community Project, Princess Janae Place, and Translatina Network. Sean Coleman, the executive director of Destination Tomorrow, said the organizations were aiming to raise at least $65,000 to pay for operations, as well as to supply meals and metro cards to people who use the center. So far, the members of the coalition have worked well together, he said. We all understand this is bigger than us, Mr. Coleman said. There won't be any fighting. We understand what's at stake. How often do we get this opportunity? The Jamel Young, 29, a massage therapist who lives in the Bronx, says he plans to go to the center for as many services as possible to cut down on travel and to save time and money. It's frustrating and discouraging because you feel like, oh, what next, he said. It becomes tedious, and it can get very expensive going to different locations. The new center, Mr. Young added, is a way of recognizing that trans lives matter. And on that note, I think that's a, a good story to end, end the show on. So uh, stay tuned to Mutiny Radio. Um, I'll be sitting in for Val, Global Val, for Women's Magazine next, as well um, as Common Thread Collective, which comes up from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. So stay tuned and listen to Mutiny Radio. We're doing some fundraising, so check us out on Mutiny Radio webpage and see how you can donate and help out the station. We have shows here every day of the week. We've got music and comedy and politics and everything under the sun. And also, we're open for rentals. So if you'd like to rent the space for a show, uh, feel free to contact us as well. We are located at 2781 21st Street here in the Mission. And our phone number, as always, is 415-550-0511. So thank you, everyone, for listening. And I'll play us out with with some prints. And uh, how about nothing compares to you? I think that's a that's a beautiful one. So have a good week, everyone, and we'll be back next week.
Alex, Ed, can you tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. What? <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby! There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative 
to smoke it. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby! Good! Because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again! And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4AltaCalifornia.com. That's 4AltaCalifornia.com for a non-addictive pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4AltaCalifornia.com. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Yeah, you. You look like the kind of person who has a sense of humor. Oh, is the radio talking to me? No, I'm on an internet podcast. I'm talking to an internet podcast? Don't be silly. It's a one-way form of communication. But I don't want you to miss out on the Muni Radio Comedy Festival 2016 from March 2nd through 6th. And you don't have to. You can buy tickets now on universe.com with 24 national and international visiting comedians and 20 local hosts. You won't want to miss a thing. What if I can't be at every show? Don't worry. All shows will be available for free download at mutinyradio.fm until the internet falls apart. Oh, podcast God, I can't wait to listen to all these great comedy shows and everything else that's cool and MutinyRadio.fm before the internet falls apart. You too won't want to miss a bit of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival from March 2nd through 6th, 2016. Buy tickets now. Brought to you by Subliminal SF, PBR, The Eagle SF, Brainwash Cafe, Asiento, and the great people at Alta California Botanicals. Have you heard of Subliminal SF? Visual and auditory mind control. Graphic design, physical merchandise, live music promotions. Go! www.subliminalsf.com for the most amazing t-shirts you've ever seen. Graphic design for every need and live music promotion at some of the best bars in San Francisco. That's Subliminal SF, visual and auditory mind control. Go to subliminalsf.com now. No matter which way you run. 
Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host, P. 